Dr. Myers, welcome to Network Capital TV. On this uh, channel, we try and demystify career principles and mental models of uh, high achievers from different walks of life. Uh, you've had a really interesting career. Uh, could you just briefly tell us about who you are and what do you do? That's right. Yeah. Um, so, hi. Um I'm a sociologist. I, I'm a professor, an associate professor now at Boston University. I teach courses in economic sociology, uh, popular culture, and gender. And um, I, I guess it's an unusual path to become a sociology professor. I, I used to, um, from the time I was in college, work as a fashion model. Um, and then I, I basically transitioned my experiences in the fashion modeling world into an object of sociological study. I wrote my dissertation about the fashion industry, and now my um, follow-up book is an examination of... Um, the the value of women's beauty in high-end nightlife consumption. Fascinating. Um, <laughs> how did you get interested uh, in sociology as a subject? Um, well, sociology is one of those topics that I, I think um, is just kind of inherently really fascinating because it is the, the study of society, of, of people, of organizations, social change. Um, and so I was always you know, interested enough in the material, but if I'm being perfectly honest with you, um, you know, I was a really, I was a very good student from the time I was in high school, but I was also uh, a little bit lazy. And so <laughs> when I was in college, um, I just, I thought that sociology um, was kind of an easy subject. And right. so I was taking these sociology classes uh, because I saw them as like, you know, GPA boosters. And so, uh, but I took enough of them to then get hooked on the material itself. And then I, I took one class in particular and the, the professor was, um, it was a, a social theory class and it was so riveting that I, I decided to uh, change. My original major was uh, public relations. Actually, I should have been a journalist, <laughs> a journalist in PR, yeah. It's always, um, you know, um, a bit of serendipity, a bit of luck and a bit of effort. But right. uh, you, um, you got spotted, right, as a, as a fashion model, and then your career really took off. I, I believe you were doing quite well as a model as well. Well, so that's one thing that I found that was really interesting is that there are so many different steps towards success to become um, a successful model. And um, Please start from the beginning. Like, what was the day like? How does one get spotted as a model or not? <laughs> right. As a young, as a young person, how was like? What was it like to be spotted? Okay. Well, so I, I modeled when I was um, a teenager in Atlanta. I, I grew up in the suburbs of Atlanta, about forty-five minutes outside of the airport. And when I was about fifteen, I went to one of those model search contests. Um, yeah, kind of because my friends had heard about it on the radio. So, you know, this was already it tells you it's in the kind of late 1990s. And um, so I, I went and I, I got connected to these modeling agencies. And so I modeled throughout college, but it wasn't, it was just Atlanta. It's like a, a pretty small commercial catalog market. And then 
when I got into graduate school to go to NYU, I had essentially finished my career um, on the catwalk. So I thought, um, and I, I started grad school at just as a graduate student. I was making the stipend at the time was about $20,000 a year, which is not a lot of money, even for <laughs> New like, York. Yeah. Right. Even if you're 22 and used to, you know, having lots of roommates. Um, but I was, I was very happy to have that new career in graduate school. I was interested in the fashion modeling industry, but, um, but I was ready to focus full time on my studies. But in that first semester in grad school at NYU, I was sitting at a Starbucks in Union Square um, and I was reading a book in social theory and uh, I met this scout who um, was a you know, very, very loud kind of gregarious person um, who immediately told me like, you've got a great look and you could be a model and I, I want to introduce you to the agencies. And I explained like, I'm a student, I finished modeling, it's not for me anymore. And he was very persistent. And it was at the same time that I was looking for, um, I was looking for a research site so that I could take this course on participation uh, or observational participation methods, ethnography, which is the method that I do now. Um, and so in order to take that class, you had to have a place that you were going to go and make observations. And so I thought this might be, this might be the setting, right? Like maybe he'll introduce me to an agency and, and the agency. Fascinating. Would so you basically so did it. You took him up on the offer and you also found a way to, you know, have your ethnographic site to be the that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't come into grad school thinking that I would model again because, you know, I came into grad school. I was already uh, 23, just about. And 23 in the modeling industry is really quite old for a woman. Um, and the agency, when they when they uh, put me back out into the market in New York, they advised me to lie about my age to say that I wasn't 23, but that I was in fact, um, an 18 year old, you know, new, new, uh, student at NYU <laughs> rather than a 23 year old PhD student. And you write about, uh, you know, ageism in the modeling world, which we will discuss. Uh, yeah. Dr. Mears, what is ethnography and how did you apply it to your newfound site? Right. So um, the ethnography is a qualitative research method that involves going to some facet of the social world that you're interested in and studying it as an observer, almost like really um, kind of long-term committed in-depth uh, investigative journalism, but you're very straightforward and kind of out front with people what you're doing. Um, and then you go and make those observations and you take notes and then you analyze those notes and your notes become your data, right? As opposed to using quantitative survey methods where you would have numerical data, your observations are your data. In addition to doing that, uh, a lot of ethnographers also, myself included, do interviews with some subset of that population that they're studying in so that you get both kind of what people what people are doing in practice and then what people say, like how people are thinking and what are the justifications for their behaviors. And using all that data, you can kind of piece together um, some hopefully, you know, theoretically um, driven analysis uh, to explain the world that you're observing. And uh, you were both a participant as well as an observer. So does that make your research a little more complicated? Um, yes and no. So, uh, so a lot of students will say, you know, this sounds like it's really um, not objective, 
but the the argument that, you know that I would counter back is that quantitative data actually also involves a lot of subjectivity and a lot of choices and selecting on what questions you know how to how to draw up a question um, you know which variables to crunch how to construct a variable um, those are all subjective processes too in qualitative uh, uh, research and ethnography usually the researcher has some degree of familiarity with the world that they're going to study and that's a very kind of basic feminist um, standpoint to, to take that you know a lot of times people are just they're interested about something from their own personal experiences and they want to understand it sociologically and so they they dive into that world and there's different degrees of that diving in right. it can be fully immersive which is what i did almost not participant observation but like observant participation where i was a full participant <laughs> So I actually signed, <laughs> right. I yeah. actually signed back up as a model, and I and I worked for about two years um, in the New York industry, and then in the London market, and that became the the basis for my dissertation. And for the second project, I was studying these um, high end nightclubs, and I I gained entry by basically becoming a. Um, a full participant, which is uh, called a girl, I became a girl, which is a very valuable type of uh, person in the nightclub world. Um, what does that mean exactly? Uh, we'll, uh, let's talk about uh, the nightclub world first and okay. then the other world first, because uh, about the nightclub world, I think many people would have read, read your very popular economist piece, which was published this, uh, this month. So perhaps you could explain what that means and um, what are the various questions that, uh, that you went to study um, the nightlife world? Okay, sure, yeah. Um, so, so maybe to back up a little bit to kind of, I'll, I'll work backwards from those questions. I'll tell you sure. the story of like how I got into this nightlife world um, yeah. and then how I became a girl in, in it. So it was around, um, 2012, my dissertation got published as a book called Pricing Beauty, and I was looking for a next research project. It is, I um, have to say, it is one of the best books on the subject. To prepare for this, I just <laughs> went through it, um, and uh, I can't think of a better book on the subject. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of great sociology and anthropologies um, in fashion, but that, so thank you. That means a lot. So um, when, the, when the book came out, um, basically a couple of things were happening. It was in the recovery of the economic crisis. Um, so, it, you know, in 2008, there was the financial meltdown and then there was this kind of global financial shock and austerity that followed such that, you know, around the time that the book came out, um, people were still hurting. Um, and it was also the time that I started seeing these media reports of people that were really going crazy in nightclubs, spending thousands of dollars, competing with each other to see who could buy more bottles of champagne. I looked at some of the prices on the menus and I was really like flabbergasted. And I was just really kind of curious about how that kind of ostentation was made possible and what people experienced when they engaged in that kind of behavior, which was at, you know, at such odds with what the rest of the world had was kind of recovering from. Um, and, and so there was, that was happening. And also when I had been researching pricing beauty, um, I met these 
promoters who were working in clubs in New York. And the promoters, uh, their job is to bring a so-called quality crowd. Sometimes they're called image promoters. Um, right. And they bring uh, good-looking women and men with a lot of money uh, to the clubs, and they get paid every night to do that. And the women that they bring in have to be good-looking in very narrow terms defined by the fashion modeling industry. So promoters are recruiting to get uh, these kinds of women that are ubiquitously called girls to get uh, are you are you are you a, a good looking woman by that term <laughs> so so um well basically there there's a typology or a, like a hierarchy of right. um some some women are more valuable than others but it all and comes you talk down about it in the people. article but we'd love to hear more about that typography Right, right, right. So it starts at the very top. The pinnacle would be working fashion models, like the kind of fashion models that people could recognize. Like I've seen her in a commercial, or I've seen her, you know, on a on a, a magazine cover. Right. And so those are the uh, if you know if clubs can have those kinds of girls in their space, if they if promoters can bring those kinds of girls consistently, um, they're considered a higher status. The promoters will get paid more. Their reputations are higher. But below that, there's a lot of people who are, you know, close enough to become fashion models, but maybe not, uh, you haven't quite made it yet. So maybe they're not yet placed in an agency, um, or maybe they're like, you know, kind of brand new faces to the industry. Um, so those models would also be very valuable. And then below them, you've got a category of women that are referred to as good civilians. And these mm -hmm. are women who are, you know, not quite as tall or not quite as thin, but thin and tall enough, right? And so mm. the way that I got in, um, I was considered a good civilian because I was um, uh, quite a bit older than the other girls. Mm -hmm. um, doing this field work when I was about 31, 32, but I could still pass, you know, like when the mm -hmm. lights are low, but, you know, I, I, if I wear my high heels, I can pass, I can, like, I can sneak in the line with everybody mm -hmm. else. And so, um, so yeah, I was a good civilian. And then below that category, there's women that are referred to as civilians. And right. you might recognize from like the military parlance, you know, a civilian is somebody who's not a full participant in a field. Sometimes they're also called pedestrians. Right. Um, and for the most part, women who are, are seen as not approximating the fashion model look, women that are just, you know, pure civilians, uh, they get denied entry. So I'm probably in that category now because I'm, I'm quite a bit older now. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but yeah, so that's, that's how I got in as a good the civilian. The is power by association. So by standing next to... Um, people who look a certain way, the goal of yeah. the club or the economy of yeah. the club is that it'll attract more people who yeah. want to get power by associating themselves with a certain kind of look, which will augment the sales of the club. So how does the right. economics of the, like, explain the revenues and costs of, a, of, an, of an expensive nightclub? Okay, so a, a club is part of what we would call the experience economy that, um, you know, you... It, there's no sense in going to a space and spending um, $800 on a bottle of Dom Perignon, which you could get at the liquor store for like, you know, a hundred or so. Um, if it, if that bottle doesn't come with some very elaborate experience. And so the, the club is kind of putting on a show to like, um, to, you know, legitimate the expense of, you know, or even a drink, you know, like a $20 cocktail um, really at any, any bar down the street could be seven dollars but within a nightclub that cocktail comes with an elaborate yeah the um, experience DJs. premium yeah 
Right, right, right. So some of the most expensive, some of the biggest expenses for a club are actually the promoters. Um, so the, the promoters are hired by the club to bring in these, um, you know, beautiful girls. Um, actually, DJs are, are increasingly very expensive because the, um, the premium on DJs had, had grown because DJs had become so successful and big names and people would pay um, extra just to you know, sit in the room while a famous DJ is playing. And that's part of the rise of um, EDM more generally, electronic right. dance music. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, of course, another huge cost for a club itself would be the valuable real estate of, um, of being in a place like in Chelsea, Manhattan, um, or in, you know, Mayfair, London. Um, but, but indeed, the promoters are making at the high end about $1,000 a night from a club. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's really fascinating, uh, well, two things about this. So the way that the promoters uh, talk about girls as a kind of currency or capital was just really striking from the moment that I started the project. Promoters would talk in the possessive pronoun terms of their girls. It's like, these are my girls. Like here, look at the, look at Instagram on my girls. Um, and they kind of collect girls almost like they're hoarding capital. And then they can spend that capital in the form of meeting or in the form of, um, uh, working at higher end nightclubs, uh, building up their reputations, meeting rich men that they think will be future investors for their own entrepreneurial ventures, such as opening a nightclub themselves or hmm. you know, a restaurant or a bar. So I, I, I call it in the book, Girl Capital, um, because it really is girls as a form of capital. The second very fascinating thing there is that the girls themselves don't get paid. Yeah. So, you're generating so much profit to the club industry, so much status and prestige, and also they're facilitating social connections among rich what men. What Marx would say to that? <laughs> right. Well, so you know, Marx would say that this is a you know this is a kind of classic case of exploitation because the girls are generating surplus value for their labor. They're misrecognizing it with false consciousness as not labor, um, and therefore they're perpetuating the system. In fact, it's a lot more complicated. I don't think it's a story of false consciousness. I think that there's a lot of um, what we might call relational work that happens between the promoters and the girls to make them the experience very meaningful for the girls as well. So the girls get a lot out of participating as well. Sometimes they're very close friends with the promoter. A good promoter knows that this is the way to get a lot of a lot of girls at his tables is to to be really friendly, to be very charming, um, to mobilize the girls to come out. Um, and to your first question, um, when you began as a participant as well as an observer and uh, you were doing London and a couple of years in New York, what was the initial question that got you interested in that and how did uh, that question pan out while you were researching it for the first two, three years in New York? Hmm. So this is a little bit of a, um, an interesting your question is a very interesting one because it reveals the, the the process of finding a research question is actually a lot less straightforward than one might think. Because Which is why um, I asked you, because many yeah. of our listeners, um, you know, are social scientists and uh, aspiring social scientists, uh, mm-hmm. and they want to they struggle big time with how should I find that burning question. Right, right, right. Yeah. So I I tend to work pretty inductively that I find. I find a topic that I'm personally really curious about um, and I, I find a system like an economic system and I want to understand how it works, but I'm not yet sure what it's a case of. Um, so yeah, that's how, that's how I operate. And I think that um, 
the way that social scientists, at, at least in my field, uh, and qualitative soci sociologists, the way that we present our research findings is always deductively. Like we lead with a question um, and we show that there's like a theoretical reason that we should have that question. There's a gap in the literature, let's say. And then like, here's my data and I answered the question. It almost never works that way. I think even for quantitative scholars, it, it doesn't necessarily work this way, that people are finding something that's interesting. They're collecting data, running analyses, and then they're figuring out exactly how to parse the question. Um, sometimes I write my research papers. I, well, I almost always write my research papers with the findings. I get the story of the findings down and then I work backwards to do the literature review. Even right. though when you're reading the paper, it's you know, like as a grad student, I read these, I was reading these papers and I'm like, wow, this question just like so, so obviously is there in the literature and like just kind of fell into this person's lap. I'm like, now, now on the other <laughs> side, I'm like, no, that, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So is modeling a good job? Um, it can be a great job. It's just a terrible career, <laughs> I think. <laughs> and, so, and there's a, there's a really clear difference there. Yeah. I mean, the mission of Network Capital is to empower meaningful careers. And we try and obviously ask ourselves, what's, what's a great job? What's a great career? Are they the same things? And mm -hmm. uh, I can't think of a better person to ask this question than you. Because you <laughs> read it like a sociologist, like a with the Marxian lens and the free market lens and as a participant as well. Tell us everything. <laughs> okay. So, um, so modeling is what in uh, so sociological parlance we could call a bad job that shares features with a lot of jobs in the new economy, which is that it's freelance, independent contracting. It doesn't come with standard benefits. Um, it's not the kind of, it's like highly insecure financially. Uh, there's high turnover. People are shifting all the time. Um, and for women, especially, it's, um, it's a very short-lived uh, kind of career, much like um, athletics uh, for, for professional athletes that, you know, people who make a living off of their bodies that, that comes to an end fairly quickly for women um, by like the late twenties. Um, there's, there's a pretty, pretty quick drop off in for her opportunities for men they can go a little bit longer um actually quite a bit longer so it's a bad job for all these reasons um but it's also has those features it shares those features with the labor market with like the gig economy and with other kinds of freelance or creative freelance jobs in in fields like the creative fields that it's very rewarding it's high prestige. It's associated with a lot of glamour. People think that that models make a lot of money. It's actually not the case. It's um, it's a winner take all. So at the top, right. if you make it at the top, you can make a lot of money, and you know that's where all the celebrity is, and and um, and all the high pay. Uh, but there's this huge base of people that never get there at all. So it's we call that winner take all. You see that in other kinds of you know arts related or creative fields and design Even fields. Even in technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, econo some economists would argue that it, you know, increasingly this is the way that the economy has gone because of um, you know technology can broadcast the best of the best all over. It means that if you can make it to the top of your field, the gains have just grown exponentially. But fewer and fewer people can actually make it to the top because there's only so much room at the top. Um, so yeah, modeling modeling is you know it's it's a little. Uh, it looks a lot better than it is. Um, like the, the cultural status of the job is a lot better than the actual structural terms of the work. Right. 
And the structural terms of the work are increasingly familiar, probably to your audience of millennials, uh, for whom, you know, having lifetime employment and a pension and security is not part of their imagination of the good life as it was, you know, for like two generations ago, or even just maybe one generation ago. Um, and it, I think that, you know, I say that it's a, it can be a good job because it, it does offer a lot of perks, uh, including travel, um, you know, including exposure within this culture industry, um, you know, the opportunity to meet a lot of different types of people to increase social capital, uh, there's fairly low barriers to entry. Like you don't need a, a degree you know, so much to get into this field. Um, you know, so in that sense, it's kind of, it has more of a openness in terms of its class base of like who can enter. Um, so, you, you know, you, you can be lower educated from a poor family in Ukraine and make it to the very top. Um, so, you know, it has some, I think, really um, seductive, tangible um, things that might draw somebody in. But, but yeah, structurally, it's a pretty poor career, especially for women, because that, um, because the, the kind of association on uh, women's value declining with age, I mean, the past the late 20s, if you haven't made it as a successful fashion model, most people assume that you won't. And so they're less likely to take a bet on somebody who's 28 than somebody who's 18. Right. So um, at that time, when you were uh, when you were uh, researching the subject and also participating in it, um, what did you observe that people on the outside should know about the world of fashion, a world of, of modeling per se? From the outside, as you said, it is uh, people think it's a lot of glamour and there's a lot, of, which is why there's such a craze to become a model. But uh, what are the insecurities that often creep in? And you talk about rejection and modeling yeah. extensively, so we'd love to hear more. Yeah, yeah, I think that you know, the, the kind of constant fear of being um, of being replaced, the replaceability, because there is such a high turnover, there's so little security that models have. I mean, there were some stories that were circulating when I was doing this project in New York that um, people would just be dropped left and right from their agencies. They're like, oh, did you hear what happened to Liana? She just got dropped from the agency and they told her to like pack up and move out of the model's apartment. Um, you know, and, and those kinds of stories were sort of constantly circulated and very pernicious because it, it meant that every time every time a model goes into an agency, she's being looked at, you know, not as, um, not as a friend or, you know, and, and not as like a, a kind of regular employee, but as, um, as a, a potential asset and being assessed as such and maybe dropped if not. <laughs> and so that kind of uncertainty was really stressful. Like, of course, there's a lot of rejection because, you know, a model's job is basically going on job interviews like 10 a day um, and, you know, probably um, probably nine out of ten of those, maybe even more, they're you, they're going to be rejected from, and so or no, kind of, they're often not given a reason, right? That's right. Oh yeah, yeah. No, you you don't get like detailed feedback on on your performance here. <laughs> I mean, so you know, sometimes, um, and then you know, sometimes the reason. Uh, the reason might be really nasty. It might, you know, it might be like painful to hear the reason, like your hips are too big. You need to go to the gym. Um, or, you know, the client called and complained and said that you're, you have a bad attitude or your hair looks bad or whatever it is. Right. And so like, that's part of the job too, is taking like these nasty kinds of feedback. Um, but oftentimes the clients don't even know why they like somebody or not. 
like clients also have a kind of hard time of, of putting it into words, what it is, what they're looking for in beauty, because it is so subjective. And it's, it's kind of, it's this finding a face that fits with a brand identity of their product that fits with their understanding of fashionability at the moment that like fix, you know, fits their mood at the moment. Um, and so a lot of times the feedback would be very ambiguous and amorphous if it ever came. Um, so yeah, all of that, you know, it, it's, it's a very weird set of labor conditions you can imagine with this kind of, right. um, no security. yeah, yeah, yeah. With this kind of constant insecurity uh, coming around. Do fashion models, uh, become great entrepreneurs? They it can. seems like, it seems like this amount of rejection only, um, I, I mean, I can see, um, so many parallels between, you know, the high tech, deep tech industry and the fashion industry, at least the way you describe, very high rates of rejection, winner takes all. It's almost a monopoly. You don't get reason for being rejected. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, as the gig economy becomes more platform based, there is zero job security. And the COVID mm-hmm. crisis makes it clear. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you explored some of these similarities? Have you seen... Um, the entrepreneurial streak within models rise as they conclude their career and move to the 30s? Or is there a sense of uh, impending gloom that my best is over and now it's only downhill from here? I think it's a real mix. Um, I don't know anybody that's conducted that kind of research, although it's a really fascinating uh, a fascinating one and probably wouldn't be too hard to, um, to do with surveys. So, um, yeah, it's... Among the people that I studied for the book, it was a non-random sample. I did in-depth interviews with models more to get a sense of the way they talk about the world of work rather than to, you know, try to compare the different pathways of exit out of the career. Um, but among among those that I interviewed, indeed, a number of them were going into um, like you know, staying in independent contracting and and looking to start their own like fitness business or nutrition or yoga uh, or jewelry design. Um, some models uh, just partner off, they get married or they move back home, they go to nursing school. I mean, there's like, there's so many different, um, different options and different pathways. So, but I do think it would be a great, um, a great research project. So coming, uh, coming to the life of uh, being an academic, um, what are the questions that your students ask you about uh, you know, your extremely unconventional career? And what are some of the stories that, uh, that are your favorite that you love to tell? Uh, like s- stories from my field work to, um, to impress Yeah, because I'm students. sure like, you know, when you walk into the classroom, <laughs> there are lots of people who would want to know more about, uh, you must be one of their favorite teachers, I can tell. Mm, maybe. I... I don't, I'm not so sure. Um, or are you really strict? I don't know. I mean, you can tell us. <laughs> so I, I usually I don't I don't disclose too much about my research until later in the semester, and that's a deliberate um, that's a deliberate thing. That's uh, I think part of like the presentation of the professorial self. On the right. first day, I do try to present as like very strict. I give a very substantive lecture. Um, that's more about the value of higher education um, and how to think about the changing value of the university over time as a way to get to, them to think sociologically about like what are they actually doing in college. Um, <laughs> and so I'll start with a lecture like, like this. And then usually by the end of the semester, after we've gotten to know each other, so I teach this really large lecture course. It's like 120 students, Introduction to Sociology. Um, 
and we cover all kinds of topics, you know, poverty, class inequality, um, residential segregation, discrimination, right. uh, sexism, everything. And then by the end of the semester, I'll do a lecture on fashion. <laughs> and that's when, and so that, that's where I feel like it, it kind of uh, connects more uh, or they can feel that, that connection to their interest. I know, I think a lot of my students might sign up thinking that it's going to be like, you know, lots of, lots of videos of the catwalk and discussions of like champagne, <laughs> but it ends up being, <laughs> it ends up being like pretty standard sociological stuff. But, the, but in the end, you know, I, I try to surprise them. Yeah. Awesome. Um, in your, um, in your journey to becoming an academic, who've been some of your mentors who have shaped your career and um, they don't necessarily need to be professors, but you know, friends, uh, family, others who've really shaped a meaningful role and in your career growth? Okay, yeah. Um, so the, the reason that I ended up going to grad school was actually I worked with a, a professor when I was an undergraduate at the University of Georgia. His name's William Finlay. He's a sociologist of labor. And he had written a book about like headhunters. Um, and he just kind of did this um, sort of more labor sociology and organizational sociology. But... Um, I, I wanted to do a um, like an interview based project for a, like my final my final project as a or like a, you know a kind of senior project and he um, he worked with me on it in an independent study and he taught me how to do interviews and kind of showed me showed me this kind of process of and we co-authored a paper together when I was in grad school from that um, so that was really invaluable to have that kind of mentorship when I was like 20, right? Cause hmm. I, I didn't, I didn't think about applying to grad school until he suggested it. And then, you know, taught me how to research programs. <laughs> and so, so that was really, really like quite lucky that, um, that we, I came across him. And then um, when I was in grad school, I had a really great um, mentor who was my PhD advisor. She didn't work in my area exactly, uh, but she ended up becoming just a really great friend, Judith Stacy. She's this kind of luminary in the sociology of the family and sexualities. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, intellectually, she was, you know, of course, like really inspiring, but more as a, f a friend that she became kind of you know, like someone I would go to for life advice as well as right. career advice. And I found that really, really important, especially the kind of, you know, getting a professor job, at the age of 29 and then coming up for tenure when I was 34. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stress, you know, it was, I was like really, um, it was a lot of like tumult in my personal life because my relationship, like broke up with a long-term partner and had a relationship change. And, um, and so I, I found that having, having a senior academic mentor who I was also really personally connected to as a friend was really valuable. Uh, to kind of balance career and life. Cause I think a lot of times we think that like career is somehow disconnected from life and you can have a mentor that would be really great on your career. But if you can't really talk to them about what's going on in your life, that there's a little, it can be some incompatibility there. Right. And then finally, when you became a professor and then you started rising in the field, um, what was the mission? What, what did you really want to do with your life? When did you start getting that clarity? Have you figured it out? Oh. <laughs> oh man this is a question probably that um that a lot of your listeners ask themselves yeah yes i assure you i ask myself yeah. yeah me too i didn't really find answers until um i had children 
I think, and partly that's because, uh, so I had, I had um, my, my daughter is five now and my son is two. And um, yeah, you know, when, when my, when my daughter came into my life, it just really changed um, the, um, that kind of question was no longer something that I could, that I was asking so much because it was just kind of obvious that like now I'm in charge of taking care of this young person and that's mm. going to be my like primary thing for the, for the next, you know, 20 years and, um, and, and forever actually, but like, you know, primarily 20 years. Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess that um, I'm super lucky in that I, I had this like early academic success that um so that i could get i had tenure before i had my kid because i think i would have been pretty stressed out trying to come up for tenure while also taking care of um this uh, this baby but um i was also really lucky in that i landed in a job that that did feel inherently rewarding that that i was you know quite quite glad to do and and quite proud to be in right so i yeah, it's sort of, it, I don't know, I just was, I don't know if I have like strong advice on this other than, um, I, don't, I don't know exactly like yeah, what to say. Yeah, but you just kept following your curiosity. and uh, Yeah, okay, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> I kept following my curiosity until it just became apparent that like now there's this pressing need to take care of children. <laughs> so there we go. <laughs> um, so... Uh, if your daughter and your son come back to you in 15 years and they both also get spotted somewhere, <laughs> well, would, you, would you be encouraging of them taking up uh, modeling, even if to study sociology or something else? Um, yes, I would. Um, I, I would be in full support. Although, um, you know, I'm sure the industry will change a lot. Uh, and my book may not be relevant, but I I would encourage them to think about um, some of the some of the structural risks of these industries, and you know that they may they may offer this kind of excitement, you know, or or glamour, personal validation, even. Uh, but I would just remind them that. Um, it's probably not a long-term path towards success uh, to kind of treat it as, as a side, a side hustle and not, <laughs> not their main thing. Um, and, it, and my answer would probably vary uh, whether it's my daughter or my son, because um, uh, men have a very different experience in the industry. Can they, you elaborate a little more because you do talk yeah. about gender relations in fashion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So men make a lot less money than women um, they so perhaps the only them. industry in the world. It, the display fields, actually, the sexualized display fields. So sex work, um, porn, stripping. Um, right. uh, workers in this industry, women do a lot better than the men um, mm. in the talent, <laughs> those who mm. are working in talent. Um, so you can see the commonalities there, right? It's mm -hmm. like the sexualized mm. display of the body. So, you know, for, for men also... Um, uh, they can work a lot longer in the industry. So, you know, there's no rush for an 18 year old to pursue fashion modeling as there is, there, there is a, a kind of pressure. Because some of the most um, well-paid men in the fashion industry are closer to 40. Yeah. 
That's right. Yeah. The um and they're working in commercial catalogs and but they yeah. can also do the catwalk and it's very rare to see women um if they if they're not already famous right by right. 40 to to continue modeling. At that point they'd be celebrities anyway. So um so yeah, I, but I think that there are some fabulous things to get out of the industry. You know, I mentioned the, the travel, but um, that's one thing that that really was valuable to me. I was, you know, I grew up in the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia. Um, neither of my parents were, you know, particularly well traveled, or um, and I was actually first generation college student. Um, so for me to be able to go live for six months or six weeks in Milan, six months in Hong Kong, you know, eight, eight weeks in Tokyo. I mean, this is a, this is a, a kind of travel and a kind of cosmopolitan experience that I would have never had in my late teens, early twenties. Yeah, and in a way, I mean, the books that you've written, your PhD, your professorial career, uh, it also, I mean, your curiosity stemmed from personal experience. Um, so in a way it also worked out because in the economist piece, you, you do mention that you don't regret, uh, being a model for a second because, uh, I mean, the experience was worth it. It's not worth it for everybody, but I think for you, it did sort of, uh, work out quite well. Yeah. I mean, it, it could have worked out pretty badly too. I mean, there's certainly a lot of, a lot of risks, you know, to an 18 year old who, you know, goes abroad, um, was living in model apartments, you know, unfamiliar with the language. Um, there've been yeah, numerous cases of, um, of like assault systemic abuse against, um, against models. So, it, you know, it could have, could have gone really badly, but um, in my case, it, it did come together. So yeah, I, I embrace that idea indeed of like following your curiosities. Um, but, but also very cautiously, I think. So yeah, back to your question, if my kids, you know, got scouted and, and had these opportunities to go work as models, I would encourage them to, um, understand the risks as, as well as be realistic about the rewards. So um, Network Capital TV, we did a piece on your career pivots. Like what, what are the broader lessons from your life? And now we are speaking to you. So I'm going to do this rapid fire and uh, okay. you can choose to answer any, some or a few questions that emerge from that. So question one, if you were to connect the dots, looking backwards, uh, what are some themes that keep recurring? What are the questions that you ask yourself as an 18 year old that you ask yourself uh, a few years later? Um, I consistently ask questions about status. Um, what are the signals of it? Who has it? How do they show it? Uh, why is it worth something in this setting and worth less in another setting? <laughs> I say that um, coming from the suburbs of Atlanta, you know, where um, I was like, like extremely thin and, you know, fairly awkward. Um, and, uh, you know, had no chance of becoming a cheerleader, which were like the alpha girls in my high school. <laughs> and, um, and then when I got into fashion modeling, I, I could see that, you know, what had worked to a disadvantage in that setting um, in Georgia was, was actually really quite an advantage, like, you know, at a, at a casting in New York uh, or in Milan. Um, so yeah, I've kind of consistently thinking about like, how are those hierarchies changing um, across different places that I go to. What failure um, set you up for success the most so far? 
Would failure set me up for success? So, um, wow, this is actually a really hard question. Do people do people take their time answering these, or do they have? Oh like, yeah, yeah. These like responses. Please <laughs> take your time. Um. Okay. Well. Um, which failure set me up for success? I suppose. I suppose I could answer by saying. Um, so I so I've I've interviewed for a number of um, academic jobs, and luckily in the academic market, you know, like any market, you just need one offer, <laughs> and so right. um, you know it worked out well. But I I was also coming up for a job in the um, I mentioned it was the it was actually the two thousand eight. Um, kind of the, the crisis was unfolding. So a lot of universities um, weren't hiring. So I was really panicked about that. And and I didn't get very many interviews, but over my, over the years, you know, from that moment until even now, um, interviewing for jobs and not whenever I, I'll, I'll think that it goes really well. And I'm usually pretty surprised that it doesn't. Um, if, you know, when it, when it doesn't, if I, if I don't land the job. And so, um, I guess in each of those instances, I mean, I don't have like a very, like a, a specific instance, but I, I know that in, in each of those instances, it's been really valuable to try to remind myself that there are a lot of like incredibly talented, hardworking people out there um, that uh, for whom like the cards will line up. And for me, for whatever reason, it didn't. <laughs> and so, so I kind of, I default, um, I guess I, I, I like to remind myself after these failures that, um, that it's not just about your talent per se, that it is also about what's in the cards, which is to say that I like to be reminded about the importance of luck to then think about how much of that I have to be where I'm at. Um. Professionally, what has been the happiest, most rewarding experience of your life as an academic and as a model? This is this is this is also a really difficult question because I'm like I just remind remembering like there are some really great moments, um, but you know what? What one of the best, the kind of best, most recent one, um, when my latest book, Very Important People, came out. Um, so it came out end of end of May you know, in the middle of the pandemic um, and also um, the anti-racist protests. And so it really didn't feel like the right time for my book to be out, you know, just like other other conversations, like so such important, valuable conversations were not about my work. And, and I was really okay with that, but we still, um, my colleagues organized a, a Zoom book launch um, and, it was it was like uh, we had we had panelists that had read the book and gave comments on it and I gave comments on it and then we opened it up for a Q and A and doing doing that from my living room on Zoom and seeing there were like you know, 150 or so people that were there including my parents and my sister including like old roommates you know people from all over the world that have helped me with this project it was so validating and so it was like the peak i really felt like it was the peak of my career and it was also so valuable to have that conversation even um, you know with with all the turmoil happening but I felt so connected to this community, um, having that connectivity, especially at this moment where like, you know, everything is on Zoom and it, it can feel really hard to have lost that, that connection since March. It, that was an amazing feeling. 
have a book coming out in a few weeks, so I was taking notes about the launch. Maybe I can <laughs> use some. <of> <laughs> um, any memorable moment as a model where you felt um, wonderful? Um, yeah, yeah. The okay, so so pricing beauty is basically like a it's a it's a straight up sociological. Uh, format where I take something that looks really glamorous that there's a lot of preconceived notions about and I unpack how there's so much labor, so much inequality and basically people's lives look a lot worse than they really are. Uh, right. That's like a standard sociological narrative. And so my answer is also uh, also has these two sides. So I did one job when I was in New York that was like a, a very exciting job. It was, um, I got to walk the catwalk for um, Mark by Mark Jacobs. And when, you know, to do that kind of show, uh, all of the people in the agency were so excited because they were like, Ashley, it's happening. Like you're going to do Mark Jacobs and then everything, you know, you're going to do campaigns and you'll become superstar. This is how it works. Um, so I was super excited when I got that job. And when I walked the catwalk, it was one of these like really high feelings to be on the, on the stage. I always felt like the catwalk was the most exciting moment in fashion right. to like command that much attention and power uh, going down and coming back. Um, and uh, it was Christina, like some remix of Christina Aguilera's You Are Beautiful was playing. <laughs> so whenever the song comes on the radio, I have this really nice effective connection of like having, you know, having occupied that, that position. Um, but the backstage story of that show, I remember uh, getting the phone call uh, when I was going down in, into the subway in New York from my agent to tell me that, um, that I got the show and that I was going to do the catwalk on uh, Mark Jacobs. And the booker told me on the phone, it's all starting to happen for you now, Ashley. <laughs> and I was so excited that I was like running down the stairs in the subway in New York and I like fell, <laughs> and I, like, like bruised my arm or something. Oh boy, that's... <laughs> And it was such a like stark awakening, you know, I'm like sitting on the floor on the like dirty subway stairs, <laughs> like injured <laughs> while this like great news had happened. So yeah, anyway, that's kind of a weird story. But It's not weird at all, quite memorable. <laughs> Just connect the dots. Romance, love, fashion and sociology. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is also kind of a weird and tough question. Romance, love, fashion, so I can connect them in any way that I want. Any way at all. And I'll tell you the context of the question, because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you have previously spoken about the fact that, uh, you know, I mean, uh, mostly we talk about women in fashion, but there are also men in fashion. And uh, we talk about rich men. We talk about attractive women. But, uh, you know, these male models are less spoken about. But there has been literature about, you know, peers like men and women uh, falling for each other and what have you but there is also the notion of capital lurking around somewhere of the rich yeah. somewhere and you talk about in the economist piece the hedge fund barons who fly in from new york and tokyo and what have you so what does um interpersonal relationship really look like in the fashion world real connections or do they exist? Do they not? Is it all power by association? Are we all living in a matrix? <laughs> um, okay, well, sidestep the question of living in a matrix, because sometimes I ponder that myself. But the thing about what's a real connection is not just a question about 
for people in the fashion industry, it might be a very interesting case, uh, the right. fashion industry, in order to ask that question because women have such um, power in the form of embodied capital, like beauty, a kind of beauty that's very recognizable and legitimated by this high status fashion industry. And so because women are in this position with this kind of beauty capital, we might call it, we might think that they're uh, trying to or aware of how to leverage it meaning how to exchange that capital for something that's valuable, not in the labor market, but in the marriage market. Um, so that question is a really interesting one. Like what is, what is, a, what is an authentic love match? Right? Right. Like what's an authentic relationship? I think it's a misguided question because it assumes a dichotomy between the authentic and the inauthentic, between real romance versus one that's transactional or strategically Right. motivated right, by people who are looking to exchange and capitalize on whatever kind of power that they have. The very notion of an ideal relationship or, or like a kind of pure romance is one that comes out of a series of developments, you know, from the 18th to 19th and also 20th centuries um, that kind of liberates women to be able to choose on the basis of love, you know, prior Prior to the 19th century, most unions were economically driven. Um, most unions were about enriching male-controlled <laughs> families or like, you know, male-controlled pools of, of um, private property or, or even kinship uh, property, but controlled by men and, and women would be the conduits of circulation among them. Um, yeah, but this, this notion, this very romanticized notion of true love is a pretty modern one. I think it's right. a pretty middle class. It's a, it's a certain kind of classed norm. Um, and so I, I think that the people that circumvent that norm, that, that sidestep it, and think about romance in transactional terms are actually really interesting. I think that we could probably learn a lot from from how they think about their own worth and assess somebody else's worth and consider what's a good match. Uh, I'd love to do a book on on that, like e economic or power asymmetry in relationships, everything from like the groupie to the sugar baby to the trophy wife. I would love to do a project on that. There are some uh, Netflix shows um, yeah. <laughs> being considered on that. Um, right, right. If Marx were your mentor today, what would he comment on you? Like, what would he have to say to you? And what would Marx have to say about, you know, the fashion world, um, you know, the stage in general? <laughs> I think, uh, well, you know, Marx is like a you know fairly curmudgeonly curmudgeonly guy. Uh, I don't think he had a really good gender sensitivity, or actually not not so much nuance anyway in his um, in his kinds of analyses. He probably wouldn't wouldn't choose me as a as a student. Um, but <laughs> but if he if he were to come across you know the fashion industry and all these different expressions of the experience economy and. Um, and leisure and uh, and consumption of late capitalism, I think it would probably um, you know confirm the worst of his fears about um, about these ever ever clever and proliferating ways of um, exploiting insecurities and aspirations, creating greater class divides between people. Um, means of people misrecognizing their own interests in pursuit of beauty, status, 
consumer goods in order to enhance their status, meanwhile, at the complete detriment of social justice and the environment. So, yeah, he wouldn't be too pleased. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> um, lastly, um, what are you working on these days and what are you most looking forward to and this um, pandemic that we all find ourselves in America is in a particular kind of turmoil. Um, what gives you hope and uh, how are you dealing with all of that going around? Okay, so I have like short term and long term, I guess. Yeah. Right. Um, but, and, I, and my long term, I think like most people, especially working parents, you know, that, that's actually a truncated long term because they don't know what to expect. Um, even in September, let alone, you know, next year. Hmm. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, in the immediate day to day, I spend probably uh, four to six hours um, with my kids outdoors doing something like today before this interview, we were at the beach um, and then wow. I have to shuffle them around some other appointments. Um, but we are, we are usually outdoors more than we ever had been before. And I look forward to that each day, like discovering something about the natural world with them. Then, you know, in the longer term, at least just for this year, I'm, I'm co-teaching a course at Boston university in the Women and Gender Sexuality Studies program. It's a fantastically innovative course. It is uh, interdisciplinary with three faculty who are experts in gender. Um, one from social sciences, that's me, somebody from biology, and somebody from the humanities. The biologist is an expert in um, uh, environmental plasticity, and she does research primarily on frogs and frog eggs. <laughs> and the person from the humanities is like a, a film studies uh, scholar. And so, you know, really adroit in like close readings of films. And we're going to, right now, we're planning our course to be primarily online. And we're envisioning how to piece lec lectures together so that we'll take a topic like, um, I don't know, uh, non-reproductive sexuality. And I'll be giving a lecture about hookup culture on college campus. Right. Uh, we'll be looking at a film uh, that, that is kind of in the realm of sci-fi. Um, and we'll also be looking at a lot of um, uh, non-human primates and the you know, evolutionary developments of non-reproductive sexuality. So it's a, it's a super cool class. It's like one of the most interesting things that I've ever done. Would it be on Zoom? Would it be in person if it's on Zoom or Teams or something like that? We would. Uh... Yeah. So we're gonna do. We're gonna flip the classroom. We're we're doing that. Um, we're, so we're starting to record our lectures. Hopefully in the next couple of weeks, and then we'll have the students watch the lectures, and then we'll meet together. Some combination of in person and on Zoom um, to have small group discussions from six feet apart <laughs> if we're in person. <laughs> Dr. Myers, it was such a pleasure hosting you and we can't have a way to host you back for some of these courses that you talked about because, you know, I mean, we can do a full-fledged course on yeah. discuss. Well, yeah, I'm super impressed with like how closely you read my work. It's such an honor. Thank you. <laughs>